an archbishop committed to liberation, peace, and justice. Here is a person in a establishment church in a significant city in the country saying the sorts of things that he's saying and calling other people to go to their own personal conscience and perhaps come to similar decisions. Uh, Hunhausen looked like a kind of liberation theologian of the Northwest. Had to clip this person's wings and certainly clip the wings of this church in Seattle that, uh, from its own point of view, is simply following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And of course, uh, Washington, D.C. and the Reagan administration are uh, deeply concerned about somebody challenging the empire itself and using the language of Scripture to do so. This is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker, a priest from Montana who became Archbishop of Seattle during the height of the Cold War, made his mark challenging our government's atomic and military policy and the church's support for the poor and the marginalized. Raymond Hunthausen died last year, leaving his mark on our society and the church he loved and served, which often didn't support him. Scholar Frank Fromhertz joins us from Portland, Oregon, to discuss his new book, A Disarming Spirit, The Life of Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen. Frank, thank you very much for, uh, uh, for being with us. You're welcome. We're talking about a man who died a year or so ago, hasn't been Archbishop of Seattle for probably 17 years. Why is he so important to deserve a book and uh, to deserve a discussion about him today? Well, Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen uh, was a prophetic religious leader. He spoke to major issues that were enormously significant in the 1970s and 1980s and remains so today. War and peace, issues in society, uh, immigrants uh, trying to get into this country, fleeing violence in Central America, all the concerns within the church itself, his call for gender equality. Uh, then within the church and in society, enormously important in our own time. Even his very down-to-earth environmental ethic uh, speaks to the enormous concerns today with Earth Blender and the climate crisis. Those are among the issues. Certainly the fact that he opened the cathedral to dignity to the gay lesbian community at the time, enormously important issue today, uh, challenging uh, sexism, racism, militarism, classism, uh, but doing it in a way that doesn't fit into any kind of iconic uh, expectation of some sort of a, a firebrand uh, uh, Revolutionary. He's the most down-to-earth uh, person you probably ever meet. Uh, another bishop uh, described him, knew him quite well, as probably doesn't have a, a mean bone in his body. Um, I argue in the book that it's really his character that is the most formidable challenge to uh, a fortress church and to a militarized, uh, what he would describe and what I would describe today also as the author of the book, but speaking through his story, uh, indeed, even to challenge it as the American Empire, kind of the Roman Empire of our time. He's most remembered for his powerful statements on a major speech that he gave at the Trident submarine base in uh, Seattle, in which he called what America was doing with its uh, nuclear weapons as a kind of Auschwitz of the, of the Puget Sound. Uh, want to develop the, that, what happened there and all of the trouble that that statement created for him personally? No, it's a super very important question, Bill. It was on the 12th of June, 1981. 
He actually uh, was invited by the uh, Synod of the Lutheran Church in America. And there, indeed, he did give a blockbuster speech, a speech that his uh, close associate, Father Mike Ryan, there in Seattle, would describe as shot heard around the world. And why is that so? I think there are at least two major reasons. Uh, one is, as you said, he described the Trident submarine base and everything that represented by these weapons that have the capacity for first strike, uh, enormous uh, destructive capacity, uh, and the fact that the uh, rail lines would deliver uh, the actual warheads from places such as the Pantex plant in Amarillo, Texas, where they would be developed, shipped up on trains, come to the Hood Canal, where the naval base Bangor was located, where the first, uh, uh, again, new technology, second-class Trident uh, two submarines would be arriving. The first one came in August of 1982. So in that context, Raymond Hunthausen speaks of Trident uh, and the base there as the Auschwitz of Puget Sound. He's trying to say, of course, he's very conscious of the uh, enormous uh, significance of using that metaphor of Auschwitz. Uh, he's simply trying to make the point that to let the Trident proceed forward would require massive cooperation maybe taciturn cooperation, maybe uh, what he would call a sin of omission, but an act of culpability and complicity on the part of all of us uh, to not speak up about what he would see as an enormously sinful uh, complicity with something uh, that could lead to the eventual incinerations of millions, as he put it, millions of our brothers and sisters, human beings, uh, should those weapons uh, on those Trident submarines ever be uh, launched. I never forgot uh, a visit I had to a ship in New York Harbor, a guided missile destroyer, and I talked to the captain of the ship. I asked him how many missiles there were on the ship, and he said 17. I said, well, how long does it take to load a missile? And he said, oh, maybe a week or three or four days anyway. And I said, well, gee, how do you reload after you shoot all 17 off? And he said, if you shoot all 17 of these off, there's not going to be a world to have to bother about reloading for. Well, back when, when Hunhausen, uh, Archbishop Hunhausen gave that powerful speech, it didn't resonate well. It didn't resonate well in, in some circles. It didn't re resonate well with the government of the United States. I guess that was, uh, that was the Reagan administration, particularly John Lehman, the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, and it didn't resonate well at the Vatican. Will you tell us about that? Yes. Well, let me just make one thread connection to what we were just discussing as I do so. So I think we can recall that in the time when he describes the Trident base and the Trident submarines and the entire operation as the Auschwitz of Puget Sound, this is a time when a wider metaphor is being used, and it's been widely used at that time, and that's the idea of a nuclear holocaust. So I think it's the context of the holocaust and the nuclear holocaust notion that you just kind of alluded to with that example there of uh, the, the testimony that you heard from a person describing the firepower of, of these types of weapons. I think that's the, the context. Now, Hanausen wasn't saying something that was entirely outlandish. It was a powerfully prophetic metaphor, but it was situated within a widespread consciousness uh, that we could face uh, uh, a nuclear holocaust. I think the other thing that's very important to emphasize is that in addition to that kind of language, provocative language, for him, prophetic religious language, uh, he did call for, he did articulate a vision 
of uh, nonviolent civil disobedience, specifically the idea of conscientious war tax resistance and redirection. And with a few, within a few months, he himself made a decision at Notre Dame University where he decided publicly that he would go through and start doing uh, nonviolent uh, civil disobedience in the form of conscientious war tax resistance, where he would withhold 50 percent, a symbolic portion uh, representing more or less the amount of tax dollar that goes to the military, uh, that he would withhold that from going to the IRS and would submit it instead to a peace tax fund. Of course, ultimately, he cooperated with the authorities, and uh, when they garnished uh, his small income, uh, such as it was uh, for uh, IRS purposes, uh, he didn't fight that, but he had taken his stand, and he practiced what he had preached in the speech. Uh, those kinds of actions on his part, so his, his rhetoric in the speech, but also his actions that followed the speech, um, were very provocative and uh, troubling. Here is a person in a establishment church in a significant city in the country saying the sorts of things that he's saying and calling other people to go to their own personal conscience and perhaps come to similar decisions. Uh, Hanhausen looked like, as you were saying earlier, to them like a kind of liberation theologian of the Northwest. Got to clip this person's wings and certainly clip the wings of this church in Seattle that, uh, from its own point of view, is simply following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, uh, Washington, D.C. and the Reagan administration are deeply concerned about somebody challenging the empire itself and using the language of Scripture to do so. Uh, Raymond Hanhausen basically was describing Jesus as having been seen by the Roman Empire as a subversive and a revolutionary. Uh, Raymond Hanhausen would have never seen himself as a subversive and a revolutionary and he certainly, by virtue of his way of being, wasn't uh, that kind of a character. As far as we know, nor was Jesus in his life as we know it. Uh, that is to say, they weren't Che Guevara sort of out on the outside, sort of uh, in-your-face personalities. It's actually their very nonviolent, uh, peaceful demeanor and calm character that made Raymond Hunthausen, in some ways, an even more a provocative figure uh, in an ironic sort of way. So what happened to Hunthausen? What uh, Hunthausen, by the way, was appointed by Pope John uh, uh, the Twenty Third, uh, and uh, this uh, kind of uh, the the man that brought forth the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and uh, but of course, 20, John the Twenty Third died shortly after that. Hunthausen's in place. Uh, he has challenged uh, the, the basically the American establishment, the American establishment, and uh, uh, talks to Rome, and uh, and and how was Hunthausen ultimately dealt with in the church and by the government? Right. Well, I I certainly don't want to uh, labor the point, but it's tr it's true that John the Twenty Third, as you were saying, was. Uh, had called the Second Vatican Council back in the early 60s. The first session of that council was when Hunthausen uh, became a bishop there in Helena. Actually, the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening in 1962 at the same time as Hunthausen was at the first session. Uh, so it was many years later. By then, it was uh, Pope Paul VI uh, who was the pope when uh, he uh, appointed uh, Raymond Hunthausen to move from Helena to Seattle in 1975. Again, in three years later, 1978, um, John Paul II becomes the Pope. And uh, that's when this restorationist uh, trend I was describing, kind of pulling back the whole um, uh, spirit of the Second Vatican Council, uh, sort of taking back command and control of the church uh, from all this kind of liberal, 
progressive-minded uh, vernacular kind of uh, um, approach to uh, the church. Raymond Hunthausen was a very much a Vatican II, quintessential Vatican II bishop. So he believed in shared responsibility, believed in gender equality. He wrote one of the, uh, listened to women in the Archdiocese of Seattle and uh, issued one of the very first pastoral letters really calling for equality across the board in the church, uh, uh, challenging sexism. As I mentioned earlier, he opened the doors of the cathedral to the uh, gay national uh, Catholic uh, community known as Dignity. And uh, so many other ways uh, uh, he uh, took seriously the Second Vatican Council call to bring the gospel into the world and to do the work of justice. Um, it really uh, was a uh, visitation. They called it an apostolic visitation. Uh, he was actually told about this by the papal nuncio, the Vatican's representative to the uh, U.S. government, uh, when there was a gathering of the... Okay, what, 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 we're what we're talking about now is kind of the disciplining of Hunthausen by, uh, by Rome, uh, uh, particularly by Cardinal Ratzinger. That's correct. And, and basically Ratzinger's point person in Washington, D.C., uh, told Raymond Hunthausen actually during a coffee break at a meeting of the U.S. Catholic bishops when they were putting the finishing touches on the Catholic bishop's pastoral letter on war and peace. This was in May of 1983. And Pio Laghi, the essentially, again, apostolic uh, uh, representative from the Vatican in D.C., uh, leaned over and basically in the coffee break says to Raymond Hunthausen, we're, we're going to have an apostolic visitation. It was Archbishop Hickey from Washington, D.C. was sent out to Seattle then in the fall of 1983 to conduct this visitation. Uh, if ever there was a euphemism, that was it. Uh, I think probably the the image of uh, Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor would be a more appropriate way of describing what actually happened. It was an inquisition. And after this uh, inquisition, what happened? What happened to Hunthausen? What happened to, in the archdiocese of uh, Seattle? It was a very painful time uh, in the ensuing years uh, between the time of that visitation. And there's no question that that faith and disarmament speech, we know that happened in June of 1981, the visitation in the fall of 83. Uh, by uh, 1986, Rome has appointed, essentially put a person in there named Donald Wuerl, uh, named an auxiliary bishop, essentially sent by the Vatican to come in and take authority in several areas, essentially take a lot of Raymond Hunthausen's authority away from him, but they told Hunthausen he should make it look like uh, this was something he accepted. And, of course, uh, Hunthausen was always, again, that Vatican II spirit of openness, opening the windows. Hunthausen wanted everything to be more transparent. Rome wanted everything to be secret. And inevitably, this was going to become a clash. And because Hunthausen was so shared responsibility-minded, so encouraging and empowering of uh, the people in the Archdiocese of Seattle, certainly those people in the Archdiocese of Seattle who supported him, and there were many, uh, really came out uh, and strong uh, and rally against uh, Rome's actions, uh, especially when it was learned that uh, this auxiliary bishop world was given final authority in several areas. Archbishop Hunthausen uh, wasn't even told by Rome that world had become final authority. Of course, in a number of areas, for example, anything that had to do with uh, official church policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the gay community, for example, or on marriage annulments or any, any number of other areas, liturgy, where a uh, world was put in charge. 
So this kind of two leaders uh, situation, one with real authority, for, at least from the Vatican II inspired sector of the church in Seattle, uh, and then world kind of Rome's person of authority, that created a tension and a clash. It was untenable. Eventually, uh, Hunhausen uh, met before his, all his brother bishops of the country, uh, pleaded his case. Uh, Rome made their case. Of course, the bishops, uh, frankly, as a body, uh, ended up to try to have it both ways. They were sympathetic with their brother bishop, but we must respect uh, the pope's wishes. Uh, eventually, it became clear to Hunthausen uh, that um, although Whirl was, uh, you know, in a kind of say, uh, Rome did agree to have Whirl leave because the protest and the rebellion within Seattle was so widespread against this Roman action. But ultimately, when all was said and done, uh, Hunthausen was never fully given all of his authority back in de facto terms. A coadjutor bishop was selected uh, to come in and uh, essentially put himself or be put in by Rome to eventually take over. And it was clear that uh, uh, Rome had achieved uh, its agenda, which was to uh, clip the wings, uh, I would say, frankly, uh, to use a, a metaphor from within the church tradition, they clipped the wings of the Holy Spirit. They certainly clipped Raymond Hunthausen's wings. Uh, we we talked a little about the uh, uh, the upsetness of the Reagan administration, particularly John Lehman, the Secretary of the Navy. Is there any indication that uh, the Secretary of the Navy or the administration talked directly to Rome and asked Rome to do something about Hunhausen? Well, there there have been a tremendous number of sort of conspiracy theories and speculations over the years about you know just how this all went down. And I tried to turn over every stone I possibly could and studied every source I possibly could. I have to say that it seems to me what's most clear, what I can, what I can say firmly without sort of going into a realm of speculation, is the record shows, and the book is pretty extensive in providing plenty of documentation throughout this book, uh, Disarming Spirit, the life of Raymond Hunthausen, Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen, that... Um, uh, Letter-writing campaigns were organized uh, by all sorts of Catholic conservative forces uh, to try to get Rome's attention, to raise issues and complaints about Raymond Hunthausen. It's very clear, as we said earlier, that Navy Secretary John Lehman was vehemently critical. Uh, there's no question that there's a lineup of uh, major figures in the Reagan White House uh, who themselves are people in high places in the administration who are Catholic. Uh, who are engaged in conversations. Uh, I never found a really extensive evidence to back up a firm case. Um, uh, there is another book out about Osbert uh, uh by John McCoy that uh, develops, I think, uh, through his research, an interesting case. Um, but I'm more comfortable with the idea that there was an enormous amount of pressure uh, through a kind of grassroots campaign, if you will, of uh, the right-wing uh, portion of the Catholic Church, uh, never to be underestimated uh, the significance of that portion of the Church, included even in the Archdiocese of Seattle. A few grumbling uh, priests who liked it better under the more authoritarian prior bishop, Archbishop Connolly, and certainly uh, more traditionalist-minded Catholics uh, in the pews. But I think it's also very clear that John Paul II uh, was concerned, coming from Poland, about having an archbishop uh, radically challenging uh, 
U.S. nuclear posture and policy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union at the time, given John Paul II's background under Soviet oppression. That's a part of the story as well. We uh, have a man who, uh, uh, his last years was basically a, a priest in the diocese. He was at a, at a local church, no longer the uh, archbishop of the, of the church, a humble and apparently very sweet and decent human being. Uh, we look back, and you're the expert at this, you look back over his life and the, the strong statements he made and the kind of life he led, does uh, and the and the kind of pope that the church has today in Francis, uh, did he have a profound effect on the American Catholic Church? Did Hunhausen make a difference with his life in policy in the church and global policy in peace and uh, and war? Well, I would say this. I I, I think that. Uh, my Berkeley mentor, where I did my doctoral work, Robert Bellow, the late Robert Bellow, co-authored the book Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life. In that book, they described a representative character. A representative character uh, you know, would be a person who uh, uh, has uh, the characteristics or traits to which we might all aspire. And I have to say that I think Raymond Hunthausen, at, at the most important level, uh, is that kind of a person. Not that he was well-known in the same sense, let's say, of Benjamin Franklin or George Washington or, you know, uh, obviously not known at the level of, let's say, uh, uh, Pope Francis. Uh, but at the time, because of the widespread uh, coverage, especially after that faith and disarmament speech and then the storm over Seattle, the conflict we were just talking about between Rome and Seattle, uh, it's fair to say that in the 1980s, uh, he became a household name. Uh, in this country and uh, beyond. Uh, Der Spiegel interviewed him, for example, uh, for the German magazine. So I think it's fair to say that uh, he had an impact as an egalitarian-minded person facing authoritarian cultures and structures. He was inclusive-spirited, facing a command and control, and even fundamentalist patterns within the church. He was a Vatican II people of God-spirited person like John XXIII, facing a restorationist clericalism and hierarchical secrecy. I should add, he was a real outdoor athlete, a very, very, uh, you know, tremendous athlete, intercollegiate Hall of Fame, Carroll College, uh, football, probably virtually every sport you could think of, uh, including even boxing. So it's probably a mistake to describe him simply as sweet, uh, very uh, assertive in many ways, but but also a very, uh, uh, everybody's favorite uncle would be one way to describe him. Uh, but definitely an outdoor environmental ethic person as well, deeply in touch with nature, knew all the plants, would hike all the trails, uh, take the family almost any place and know everything about the nature he was in. Very ecumenical in their faith. Again, I described how he opened the cathedral to the gay Catholic community. Um, deep commitment to economic justice, uh, gender equality, uh, challenging racism, uh, of course, fundamentally challenging militarism uh, from his point of view. So uh, in some ways, uh, uh, a reflective, you know, the term a reluctant prophetic figure. Uh, but I would say, uh, uh, yes, a, a very important influence in his time. Uh, and speaking to all the issues, you might have noticed as I uh, thought of those and noted those issues, uh, so many of those are alive and well uh, important issues to address uh, right now today. So I would say now is then. 
as a person of conscience, uh, courage, and character. And those are the three, uh, the three sections of the book, his conscience, his courage, and his character. Frank Fromherz, thank you so much for telling us this story, for doing this study. Uh, we appreciate all you've done. Thank you for being here. You're most welcome. Our guest was scholar Frank Fromherz, speaking to us from Portland, Oregon. His book, A Disarming Spirit, The Life of Archbishop Raymond Hunhausen, is available in bookstores and online. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. Technical support provided by Oregon Public Television. I'm Bill Baker, and thanks for listening.